We are in Colossians chapter 3 this morning, and our text today addresses the obviously sensitive and emotionally charged topic of slavery. And the very fact that Scripture speaks of slavery here in Colossians and elsewhere without explicitly condemning it may understandably cause us to gag to maybe roll our eyes and to ask, really? And you see the title of the sermon, Christ-Exalting Slavery, Really? And the wicked institution of slavery, certainly in our own country's history and around the world, sadly involves such evils as cruelty, abuse, injustice, oppression, exploitation, and dehumanization. And so what are we to do with a text like this this morning? Well, we need to carefully understand it and apply it in connection with all of Scripture. And so let's dive into this text and see what the Lord has for us this morning. And what I want to do is read uh, Ephesians, or there I keep saying it, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And this contains the entirety of Paul's instructions to households, which includes the passage we're going to look at directly related to slavery. And this has to do with how God wants various household members to exalt Christ. So let's hear his eternal and living word, beginning in verse 18 of Colossians chapter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants, your slaves, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And this is the word of God. Let me lead us in prayer. Our holy and loving Father in heaven, we always need your help as we open your word and certainly now with the text before us. And we can't deny the emotions we may feel regarding slavery nor the backdrop of American history within which we live. But for we who are your beloved people in Christ, we know our lives and our identities are defined by you and not this world. And you call us to think and act in this world in a way that reflects our citizenship in your eternal kingdom, in a way that exalts our master, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would teach us by your spirit through your word. We pray that you would open our eyes and humble our hearts and transform us in likeness to our Lord Jesus. And Father, please empower me now to preach your word accurately and faithfully. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. 
Well, let me begin this morning by saying that with this very sensitive topic of slavery, I need to give a bit, bit longer than normal introduction uh, that is going to lead into our text. Because a text like this obviously raises a lot of questions. So I just want to mention that as an alert. This is going to be a, a bit longer than normal introduction. In the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563, that catechism begins with this question, quote, what is your only comfort in life and death, end quote. And then the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this answer that we are not our own, but belong body and soul in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, that answer expresses the truth that Christians are slaves to our master, Jesus Christ. And such language of slavery, which describes one aspect among many of our relationship with the Lord Jesus, uh, this kind of language is everywhere in the New Testament. For instance, in Luke chapter 17, verse 10, Jesus says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, are to say, We are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which was our duty. That's Luke 17, verse 10. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and in other places throughout his letters, Paul refers to himself as a slave of Christ. Peter also does that in 2 Peter 1, verse 1. A lot of times in most of our English translations, that word slave, as it's used there, is often translated servant or bondservant, but it really carries the sense of the word slave. In other words, someone who is fully owned and controlled by another. It's interesting in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, Paul thanks God that those who trust Christ have been set free from slavery to sin to become slaves of righteousness. And then it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, with words that really inform the Heidelberg Catechism's first question and answer. It's there in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, where Paul declares, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so this language of slavery, beloved, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, is everywhere in the New Testament. And so when we come to our text in Colossians 3 that leads into chapter 4, it shouldn't surprise us in one sense that Paul uses the language of slavery. However, what might surprise us and even trouble us is that Paul not only uses this language, but he does so directly in the context of the wicked institution of slavery. And perhaps even more puzzling and disconcerting is that Paul does not 
condemn this wicked institution as we might expect. And so in a sense, we might think, he seems to be implicitly condoning it, implicitly accepting the status quo with the evil of slavery. Well, sadly, as we know, many throughout history, uh, even many white professing Christians have grossly misused scripture, including this passage, to justify the practice of slavery and ultimately to justify their own vile, deplorable attitudes and actions towards blacks and towards other ethnicities that these white Christians view as less than human. It's no wonder then that some have accused the Bible and some have accused Christians of being pro-slavery. Like the British philosopher Bertrand Russell In his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, written back in the 1950s, he said this, quote, The churches, as everyone knows, opposed the abolition of slavery as long as they dared, end quote. Well, are we to understand Paul's words here in Colossians 3 and 4, along with the whole Bible, are we to to understand those words as being ultimately pro-slavery? I'm getting tongue-tied. Pro-slavery. Let me say emphatically, absolutely not. We're not to understand Scripture as being pro-slavery. God is anti-slavery because God is anti-evil. So then, of course, the question arises... With Paul's commands here in Colossians 3 uh, to slaves and masters, what are we to think of this? Why doesn't Paul outright and directly speak against the godless and evil institution of slavery? And the answer for that is this. It's because Paul was sent by God to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ for the powerful salvation of people one by one. In other words, he wasn't sent to try and transform society through political and social reform. He was sent to bring about the supernatural transformation of individuals who were enslaved to sin to bring about their transformation through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of Christ And so even earlier in his book to the Colossians, his letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 23, he says that he was a minister of the hope of the gospel. And then just a few words later, down in verse 28 of chapter 1, he says this, we proclaim him, referring to Jesus Christ, we proclaim Jesus Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And he says similar things in many other places throughout his letters. For instance, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. So you see, God had not sent Paul to be a political, social reformer but rather to be a gospel, Christ-exalting preacher. So we see that and we hear that. Well, then that leads to the question then, does this mean that Paul 
And ultimately, God doesn't care about the evil institution of slavery. Well, again, absolutely not. But you see, God knows, as Paul understood, that evil institutions exist because of evil, sinful people. You see, slavery came into existence after the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, after mankind fell into sin. And the only way to change and to ultimately abolish sinful institutions is to change, to transform the sinful hearts of people who develop those institutions. You see, only the power of God can bring about that kind of transformation through the gospel. Human beings simply cannot lobby or legislate this kind of heart transformation. Only God can do it through his power in the gospel. But here's the point to see as well. As the power of the gospel transforms people from the inside out, so the fruit of the gospel will impact culture from the inside out. Let me say that again because it's vitally important that we understand this. As the power of the gospel transforms people from the inside out, so the fruit of the gospel will impact culture from the inside out. And there are countless examples of this truth. For instance, in the city of Ephesus, there, I finally get to say Ephesians in an accurate way. In the city of Ephesus, which was just a hundred miles, a little over a hundred miles away from Colossae, we read in the book of Acts in chapter 19 there about God's work in the city of Ephesus through the gospel. And in verses 18 to 20 of Acts chapter 19, we read of the culture transforming impact religiously, financially, socially, that came through the lives of sinners who had been transformed by the gospel. So listen to this, Acts chapter 19, verses 18 to 20, we're told that also many of those who were now believers, they had come to faith in Christ, they'd been transformed, they're now believers, they came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which one piece of silver was, silver was equivalent to one day's wages. So it was a lot of money that these books were worth. But they burned them all, and then we're told in verse 20 that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see, lives had been transformed, and it began to, it began to filter out into things going on in the culture of the time. We can think of Englishman William Carey, who was born in 1761, who was the first modern missionary to a non-English speaking country. He's regarded as the father of modern missions. Well, he landed in the country of India in 1793 and through his preaching of the gospel, leading to the transformation of people over many years, the whole country 
was positively impacted in areas of agriculture and politics and medicine and education and finance, among others. We can also think of the British politician William Wilberforce, who was a contemporary with William Carey. Uh, Wilberforce was born in 1759. And he became a Christian as a young man. And then as a member of parliament, he aggressively fought his whole life for the abolition of the African slave trade. And then three days before he died in 1833, he learned that parliament had indeed passed the Slavery Abolition Act, effectively wiping out slavery in most of the British Empire. And so you see, friends, the power of the gospel transforms people from the inside out. And the fruit of that transformation in the lives of transformed people will ultimately impact the culture from the inside out. And so as we look at this text in Colossians 3, we see God's will for how Christian slaves and how Christian masters in Paul's day were to relate to each other, both serving the same master, Jesus. And ultimately, in these commandments from God through Paul, this really represents a divine internal attack, if you will, on the institution of slavery from the inside out. And so here in this passage, Paul has a higher gospel-transforming purpose in view than just the abolition of slavery. He's concerned for how Christians, who are citizens of God's spiritual kingdom in heaven, how they are to live in a way that exalts Christ in the earthly kingdoms of this world. And in the context of the first century Roman Empire in which Paul lived and ministered, and in which slavery was indeed a pervasive reality, Christian slaves and Christian masters needed instruction for how to exalt Christ in their present circumstances. Now, I might mention as a brief footnote that there are many differences as well as similarities between Roman slavery in the first century and in recent American history. There's both differences and similarities, but the essence of it is identical. One human being owning another human being with full control, authority, and power over that person. And in both contexts, as we know, sadly, masters typically viewed their slaves not as human beings, but as functional things. As Aristotle referred to them as animate pieces of property. That was the view. Well, like I said, this is a little bit longer of an introduction than normal. But there's one more question that we really need to address before we get into the text, and it's this. How do these commandments for slaves and masters, how in the world do these apply to you and to me today? I'm pretty sure that none of us are slaves in the sense that Paul is talking about them, and I hope that none of us are masters in the way that he is speaking of them either. So how is it that this text applies to us? Well, it's very common, and some of you may be very familiar with this, for preachers to make an immediate jump from slavery 
to the workplace. And the idea is that the commands to slaves can be directly applied to employees and the commands to masters can be directly applied to employers. And that's a pretty common approach to a passage such, such as this. Well, I would say I agree that uh, there are certainly some workplace implications here. But I also believe that the central point of application in the passage is much broader than just the workplace. Because it concerns how every believer in every circumstance is to exalt Jesus Christ as his slave. It concerns how every believer is to exalt him in knowing that one aspect of our relationship with him is that we are his slave. And so the broad call of our text, I think, can be summed up in this way. And here's the main point. Here's the big idea, I think, of the whole text. It's this. Beloved, exalt Christ in every circumstance, serving others as Christ's slave. I'll say it again, beloved, exalt Christ in every circumstance, serving others as Christ's slave. And what I'd like to do in our remaining time is just walk through the three parts of that statement I just made as we see these in the text. The first part is, beloved, exalt Christ. The second part is, in every circumstance... And then the third part is by serving others as Christ's slave. And so I just want to walk through those parts of the statement to see how this unfolds in our text as well as in Paul's entire letter to the Colossians. And so first of all, here's the first part of the call. Beloved, exalt Christ. Exalt Christ. Now, it's clear from other parts of the letter that Paul has written this letter because he's deeply thankful for God's transforming work in saving the Colossian believers to whom he's writing. And he's also very burdened for them and ultimately burdened for us as God is, who are believers, to live in a way that increasingly exalts the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And to exalt Christ means that we're to keep trusting him. We're to keep seeking him. We're to keep obeying him within all of the fullness of his provision for us. In dying for us, in giving his life for us, and in, in rising again that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. To exalt him means that we live in the fullness of who he is. We keep trusting, we keep seeking, we keep obeying Christ. And so this is why Paul, for instance, at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, prays for these believers in the ways that he does. I won't read all of what he says about how he prays, but look at verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1. He says, so from the day that we heard, the day we heard about your transforming, your, your, your lives being transformed through the gospel, he says, from the day that we heard of this, we haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
In shorthand, he's praying that they would exalt Christ and live in the fullness of who he is and walk in a manner worthy of him. Well, then just a little bit later, this is why Paul magnifies Christ's authority and his adequacy, his supremacy and his sufficiency with this declaration in verse 15 through 20 of chapter 1. Listen to what he says, referring to Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's exalting Christ, and he's implicitly calling believers to share in that exalting of Christ, in his supremacy, in his sufficiency, in his adequacy, and in his authority. This is also why Paul <clears throat> gives his overarching command over in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then Paul even builds and expands on that at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And ultimately, all of this is tying together with this, this central call for believers to exalt Christ, to keep trusting him, to keep seeking him, and to keep obeying him in the fullness of who he is and in the fullness of all that he has accomplished and given to us through his life, death, and his resurrection. So we are to exalt him as his beloved people. Well, okay, you say, when should we do this? Well, that leads to part two of the statement. Beloved, exalt Christ in every circumstance. Exalt Christ in every circumstance, which is to say all the time. In whatever you do, always seek to exalt Christ. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to read it, but in chapter 3, verses 5 to 17, Paul goes into more detail about how it is we are to exalt and walk with Christ, how it is we're to trust and to seek and obey him. We're to keep putting off the old clothes of our own old sinful selves, and we're to keep putting on the new clothes of our new life in Christ. That's what he gets into detail about there in verses 5 through 17. But notice in verse 17 how he really summarizes all of this, and he's talking to all believers here. He says, verse 17, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, beloved, this is, this is comprehensive and all-encompassing, isn't it? We're to always exalt Christ 
in every circumstance, in whatever we do, in word or deed. In other words, there is never a time when we're not to exalt Christ, and there is never an excuse for not exalting Christ. And when Paul says there in verse 17, to do everything always in the name of the Lord Jesus, that means we're to live in view of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what it is he's commanding us to do. And we're to, to do all of this in a manner that's overflowing with thanksgiving to the Father through him. And so exalting Christ in everything means that in our own present and specific circumstances and relationships, the good and the bad, the easy and the hard, the pleasant and the painful, in every circumstance, Christ's glory must be our top priority. And this means praying, and it means striving to keep trusting, to keep seeking, to keep obeying Christ in our current situation. Now, it's interesting then in Colossians 3, right after Paul makes that summary statement in verse 17, he then moves into this household code that begins in verse 18 and goes through the beginning of chapter 4, where he explains specifically how wives and husbands and children and parents and, yes, slaves and masters are to exalt Christ in their present circumstances. Always. Now think about this, and let me personalize it a little bit. Beloved, think about your own present circumstances and relationships. As difficult, frustrating, and as overwhelming as they may be, or as wonderful and rich and refreshing as they may be, and most likely probably some combination of all of that, in whatever your specific present circumstances are right now, God has you exactly where he's ordained for you to be at this very moment. He's lovingly and he has wisely put you in the exact situation, the exact circumstances, the exact relationships that you're in because he's designed for you to exalt Christ there. And you see how this goes way beyond just the workplace. It means that whether you're digging ditches or whether you're changing diapers or whether you're pushing papers, or taking tests, or preaching sermons, or making dinner, or fighting crime, or a million other things, beloved, it means that God calls you, as he calls me, to exalt Christ in every circumstance. Well, that brings us to the third part of this call. Beloved, exalt Christ in every circumstance by serving others as Christ's slave. By serving others as Christ's slave. Now this is what brings us more directly into our text in Colossians 3 beginning in verse 22 and some of the key implications that come out of this text. As I mentioned, slavery was a pervasive reality in Paul's days. 
in Paul's day, with slaves usually being a part of every household. And so Paul commands Christian slaves and Christian masters how it is they are to exalt Christ in that specific circumstance. And again, Paul is talking about real slavery. Human beings who were completely owned and controlled by their master, who in the context of a household was what? He was also the husband. He was also the father. And I might note that in this entire household code with all that Paul deals with, there's a continual uh, reciprocity. In other words, there's clear commands for Christian wives, children, and slaves, but there's also clear commands for Christian husbands, fathers, and masters. And as I said earlier, in the Roman culture of, of the day, slaves were usually seen as animate pieces of property. They were really seen as no different than a cow or a horse. And so Paul's commands are truly radical because at the heart of everything that he says is this, both earthly slaves and earthly masters, both are slaves of Christ. That's at the heart of everything that he's saying. Both slaves and masters are slaves of Christ. And so both are to exalt Christ in this circumstance by serving each other as, as slaves of Christ. And I think that's the timeless principle for every one of us. We're called to exalt Christ in every circumstance by serving others as Christ's slave. Now, let me just briefly walk through the text so that we can see this. So verse 22 begins, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly master. There is the direct, unambiguous command, the mandate we can think of it, for Christian slaves. Just the same way that children, as Paul says earlier in verse 20, are to obey their parents in everything, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Obviously, unless they're commanding you to do something that is sinful against God. They're to be obeyed in everything. Now, again, we can certainly apply this to the workplace in our day. In other words, Christian employees should obey their employers in everything. But again, it also applies to how we should obey anyone in any place of authority over us on this earth and to have that disposition. Well, then Paul goes on to describe what the manner of this obedience should look like, what the character and the attitudes that are expected. He goes on to say there in verse 22, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And so you see Christian slaves in their obedience to their earthly masters were to have deep sincerity of heart and integrity as slaves of Christ, wholeheartedly working very hard as for the Lord Jesus. And so they weren't to be given to eye service you know what that is, just trying to look good in the eyes of someone else when the master isn't around. It's all external. It's just about trying to look good. Rather, born out of their call to exalt and to submit to Christ, 
They were to work hard in whatever they did with sincerity of heart as unto the Lord. Can the same be said of us in the way that we do everything that God has called us to do in every circumstance that we, he's placed us in? Are we given over to just trying to be eye pleasers, trying to win the favor of people when they're looking at us? Or is it heartfelt realities born out of our growing walk with God, Christ-exalting integrity? Well, Paul goes on to then really address the motivation that Christian slaves should have with what he says in verse 24. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. And by the way, that little phrase at the end of verse 24 is probably better understood as an imperative where Paul's underscoring serve the Lord Christ. He's reiterating that command and that mandate. But when he speaks of their inheritance, of their reward that will come to them from Christ, he's talking about motivation. And for a slave in his day, this was absolutely radical because slaves in that day had no earthly inheritance at all. They had nothing whatsoever. See how Paul is even dignifying them and affirming their personhood and affirming their belonging to Christ by speaking of their eternal, ultimately eternal inheritance of them. He's affirming their spiritual identity and their worth before Christ. They're not animate pieces of property, but rather they are God's beloved children. They're heirs of the fullness of all of God's blessings. And this is their eternal hope, which should motivate them all the more to want to exalt Christ and please him by serving their masters out of love for Christ. And this is how we should be serving Christ as well and serving others out of love for him and in view of the infinite eternal rewards he's given to us in the knowledge of him. Well, then notice in verse 25, Paul goes on to give a word really of warning He says there, verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, it's debated among scholars with this passage whether the wrongdoer here is referring to uh, slaves who might do wrong or whether he's referring to masters who might do wrong. And my own Conviction is that because Paul's warning is really a link between his commands to slaves and his commands to masters, I think he's likely got both in mind. So it's really both a warning and and somewhat of a comfort for a slave uh, to both slaves and to masters. And by this I mean on the one hand, this is a warning for slaves. They might be able to do wrong and they might be able to fool their earthly master and seem to get away with things. Paul's point is, no, Christ sees and Christ is impartial and Christ will pay them back if they've done wrong. But on the other hand, it would be a word of comfort for slaves regarding masters who may be doing wrong things, thinking that they can get away with it, thinking that there's going to be no consequence. And again, Paul's emphasizing that, no, Christ does see and Christ is impartial and Christ will also pay them back for their wrongdoing. Well, then in chapter 4, verse 1, we hear Paul's radical mandate for Christian masters. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. 
Christian masters are to treat their slaves as human beings, not as animate property. And the sense of justly here has to do with treating them uh, right according to God's righteousness. And the sense of fairly has to do with treating them appropriately, even treating them with equality. Not only equality as fellow image bearers of God, but even more as fellow sharers of God's saving blessings in Christ. See, it's interesting. This is Paul's point just a little bit earlier in verse 11 of chapter 3. Listen to what he says there. When he says, of all who are in Christ, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And he's talking about identity and standing and, 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 and dignity before Christ. There's no distinction. There's an equality. It is interesting, isn't it, that even in view of our spiritual identity and equality in Christ, that does not erase or remove different earthly roles and responsibilities that God has assigned to us. And this is why Paul addresses various Christians in various roles with his exhortation in this family code section. Well, then at the end of verse 1 in chapter 4, Paul speaks to what must motivate Christian masters to treat their slaves in a Christ-exalting way. He says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so you see, both earthly slaves and earthly masters are accountable to our master in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so do you see in all of this, beloved, that God fundamentally calls all of his people, whether slaves or masters or wives or husbands or children or parents or single or young or rich or poor, he calls all of us to exalt Christ in every circumstance by serving others as slaves of Christ. And you might spend some time thinking and praying about in your own life right now, in your present circumstances and relationships, what should that look like? Perhaps there are those who are under you in earthly authority. Perhaps there are those who are over you in earthly authority. Perhaps there are those who are peers in earthly authority. But with all, how can you exalt Christ in every circumstance by serving others as Christ's slave. Well, I began uh, everything with the question, that first question that comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And as I shared, the short answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that's the short answer. The Heidelberg Catechism goes on to give a longer answer to that question, which expresses biblical truths and explains it this way. It goes on to say, He, Christ, has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. 
He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. You see what the rest of that answer is expressing is a biblical truth that there is no master like the Lord Jesus Christ who saves us, who keeps us, who loves us, who provides for us, who is everything to us, the good and the great and the chief shepherd who has laid down his life for us. You see, what a comfort and hope it is to be owned by Jesus Christ. And so in view of all of this, brothers and sisters, may we exalt him in every circumstance by serving others as Christ's blood-bought slaves. Amen. Amen.